Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, touch our hearts and minds today that we might hear what you have to say. Help me to step out of the way, God, so that your words might be proclaimed. I ask it in the name of my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I don't know if you were here in time to see the video clip as we began the, this worship service today, but I absolutely love, everyone loves Raymond, and that made me laugh. I don't care how many times I watched it in preparing for this uh, today, I laughed each and every time. Patricia Heaton is the actress that you saw there, and she was perfect, I believe, in this role as the wife and the mother of the twins and and um, the daughter-in-law, she was just perfect. And, and I feel like I have this connection to Patricia. Not because my family's a freak show, as she described, but, but because my brother's first wife knew Patricia. She was actually in a mom's prayer group with Patricia, or her friends call her Patty, um, before she was uh, given the role of, of the mom in Everyone Loves Raymond. In fact, uh, she was a part of Stacia's church there, was very instrumental and very faithful and committed Christian woman who uh, worshipped each week and also helped begin Harvest Home, which was a, uh, an, a home for women in crisis pregnancy. And so she's been uh, very committed to this work. And I recently watched an interview where she talked about her faith and living out her faith. And, and I think, you know, this was a perfect role for her because not only was she a woman of faith, but she was an everyday woman, mom, wife, and just got to come into this role and learning how to balance work and the acting career and being a mom and wife. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons that Everyone Loves Raymond was so wildly successful over nine seasons was that it exaggerated some of the things that families deal with and made us laugh at ourselves, just like this parent-teacher conference. I mean, really, who hasn't felt a little intimidated by a parent-teacher conference if you're there with your children and felt like maybe, you know, they're going to judge me kind of things? When I was a preschool teacher, one of the things I would say to the parents is, I won't believe everything I hear about your family if you don't believe everything you hear about school. You know, because kids like to exaggerate things and they like to make stories and things. And believe me, I heard some things. I really did hear some things about families. We all know that families are complicated, right? In fact, if you don't have some complications in your family, I want to meet you after church because I want to learn from you. You know, we all have complications. Our families are our most, the most important people in our lives, and we have some of the greatest joy, some of the most high mountaintop moments with our families, and yet we have some of our deepest sorrows, some of our struggles, in our families. I would like to say that all families have unspoken expectations, right? Unresolved conflict, maybe even. And if you've ever had teenagers, you've had the eye rolls and the sarcasm. There's brokenness and there's grace, all encompassed in the family. 
Families all live within their own family system within their own family system. I hope you got a handout when you came in. You don't have to use it if you don't want to, but it has um, some things along in the sermon notes, and that was the first fill-in for today, if you wanted to do that, was all families live within their own family system. My, my undergrad is in counseling, and in your last year of undergrad and counseling, they want you to pick a theory of choice because they're wanting to get you ready to go into your master's program and learn specifically around a theory, much like a doctor does in a specific area today even. And so I picked a theory, and it was called Bowen's Family System Theory. And the definition is there before you on your handout. Bowen Family Systems Theory is a theory of human behavior that views the family as an emotional unit and uses systems thinking to describe the complex interactions in the unit. It is the nature of family that its members are intensely connected emotionally. Now, why did I pick this theory? I could have picked cognitive theory. I could have picked behavioral theory. I could have picked psychoanalysis. I picked this theory because my next chapter was going to be seminary. I wasn't going to go the route of a master's in counseling. I was going into seminary, and I felt that family systems is biblical. We can go back to the first families found and recorded in Genesis, and we hear some family systems happening from the very beginning. God gives us the examples of these complicated families and doesn't edit out the junk because we can learn from that. We can learn from that. There are some common themes that happen in humanity. Now, maybe not to the degree and the way that it's described in Genesis because we are talking a very different culture, a very different time, but some themes come to the surface. We hear stories of parents struggling with their children, Jacob and his sons. We hear struggles with extended family, Abraham and his nephew Lot. We hear conflict of wives and second wives, there's Sarah and Hagar. And we hear sibling rivalry, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau. These stories capture the underlying complications of these systems that are, that are found in most families. Probably not in the way that we read it in Genesis. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. If you want to turn to Genesis chapter 29 in your pew Bible, or you can kind of follow along on that handout, we're going to be talking about a family that was pretty complicated, and I would even go so far to say dysfunctional, okay? And it begins with these words in chapter 29, beginning with verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. That always catches my attention. I have two daughters, and I know some of the arguments and some of the complications that happened in our family. Scripture says, now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. Now, some translations say her eyes were weak, but we don't know something was going on with Leah's eyes. Some commentators have even um, speculated that her, she could have been going blind. 
that there was something going on with her eyes and, the, and we're in a veiled culture now and that eyes are the first thing that you see. And so the scripture says there was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but then it goes on to say what Rachel looked like. But Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Now, why is he working for Rachel? We're going to find out in just a moment. He'd fled to Laban. He had nothing with him to give over as a dowry for Rachel, and that was the custom of that time. It's really hard to hear the biblical language that women were owned, but they were. And so he had to pay for Rachel, and he had nothing to pay for her with. And so he offers to work for seven years for her hand. Agreed, Laban replied. I'd rather give her to you than to anyone else. Stay and work with me. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel. But his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Now I think this is one of those scriptures or one of the places in scriptures that it might even get lost in translation a little bit. Because if I'm longing to be with someone... And I love them so much, it might feel like an eternity, not few days, right? But we get really, we, we understand completely that time was not of essence. He was going to work as long as it took to be able to marry Rachel. Now, before we go any further, we have to put some of this in context. Laban is Jacob's uncle. Ugh. Right? You just want to go, ugh, because we're in a different time and different culture, okay? Laban is Jacob's uncle. He is the brother of Jacob's mother, Rebecca. And Rebecca was married to Isaac, and they had twins, Esau and Jacob. Now, Esau was the firstborn. He came, the, the, the scriptures describe the birth and describe um, the boys completely. Esau was hairy had a little fur around him on him, you know. And Jacob was smooth. And it says that Jacob came from the womb holding on to Esau's heel. So it's a quick birth, okay? You've had twins. It doesn't work that way all the time, does it? No, it's longer in between. Um, and he comes forth from the womb holding on to Esau's heel. And so they name him Jacob, which means grabby, trickster, schemer, supplanter. This describes Jacob's nature from the very beginning. He is a schemer. He is a trickster. He is a supplanter. He is trying to scheme every way he possibly can and grab from Esau the firstborn inheritance. Now, the scripture also goes so far to say that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. That's odd for me to hear that because I have two daughters and I love them fiercely the same way. They're very different girls, but I still love them in that way. So it's really hard for me to hear in the scriptures that that actually was taking place. Isaac favored Esau, loved him more, and Rebekah favored Jacob. 
and loved him more. And Jacob was probably a lot like his mom because she was a schemer trickster too. You see, she helped Esau, or she helped Jacob, I'm sorry, she helped Jacob steal Esau's inheritance for literally a bowl of soup. That tells you Esau wasn't real bright, you know. He gives over his inheritance for a bowl of soup. And she tricks Isaac in the same way by making Isaac think that it's Esau by giving him some goat's hair on his arms so that he was going blind and he could not see. And so he reaches out and he feels and he thinks it's Esau. So Rebecca is teaching Jacob to do what? Trick, scheme. Well, Esau thinks after the fact and gets a little angry and threatens to kill his brother for stealing his inheritance and tricking him out of an inheritance for a bowl of soup. And Rebecca helps Jacob flee. She says, get out of town, basically. Go live with my brother Laban until he cools off. Now, you're making some connections here, and if you have that handout, you have kind of a family diagram before you. Rachel... And Jacob are first cousins. And as I said, this, these are very different times, very different culture. But in our early families, the tree doesn't fork much. It just doesn't. And so this was tradition for cousins to marry cousins. And so he agrees to a seven-year contract to marry Rachel. Now Laban, let's just put... I don't know what Rebecca and Laban's parents were really like. I can't remember if it describes it in the scripture, but they must have been tricksters too because this is a family system we see here. Laban had in his mind all along what he was going to do. So it comes time, seven years are up, and, and Jacob says, I want to marry my bride. And he says, okay, let's plan a celebration. Let's get you married. And so there's this big celebration, and in biblical customs, the wedding is a big party. Lots of wine is happening, and just a big party. And so Laban puts Leah at the altar. Again, veiled culture, and maybe even more veiled because her eyes lack sparkle or weak. He puts Leah at the altar, and after much celebration, puts Leah in the marriage bed. Can you imagine the hangover Jacob had the next morning when he rolls over and he sees it's not Rachel, the one he loved. The scripture says, but when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. You have tricked me. I think it's kind of ironic that he's appalled at this. <laughs> You've tricked me. Laban says, it's not our custom here to marry off our younger daughter ahead of the firstborn. But wait until the bridal week is over and then we'll give you Rachel too. Provided, here's the catch, provided you promised to work for me another seven years. Laban knew what he was doing all along. 
He was going to get 14 years out of this boy instead of seven. Now then, he agreed, of course, because he loved Rachel. Rachel and Leah, sisters, married to the same guy. And you thought your family was complicated. Mm. The family systems at play here. Boy, is it vivid. Rebecca had tricked Isaac. Jacob had tricked Esau. And now Laban had tricked Jacob. This family system has no honor. It has no trust. It's full of lies. It's full of schemes and brokenness. And poor Leah. That's who I come back to almost every time when I read the scripture. It's hard to imagine the pain that Leah has been going through in this. Knowing that Jacob was working toward marrying Rachel and then father coming in and using her as a pawn to get what he wanted. You know, the... In the biblical time, the eyes were the windows to the soul. And the eyes could break attraction. And so I can imagine that she felt unloved, unwanted, not just by Jacob, but by her family, by the culture around her. And when Jacob married Rachel one week later, the first wife, which had the most important importance in biblical times, the first wife becomes the second in importance. No trust in a family is a rough spot. And then you add in jealousy, oh, and you've got way beyond complications. You've got full-blown dysfunction. The competitive childbearing that broke out between Leah and Rachel, along with the servants, which was another story of another time, but that's the culture as well. And that just elevated the problems over and over and over again. It just built upon itself. Surely this family was going to learn sooner or later that if they kept doing this, it was only going to cause more pain and more heartbreak and more brokenness. But this had been going on for generations. And this is the hard truth, church. Dysfunction does beget dysfunction. It just does. Research shows that those who witness domestic violence in their own home are three times more likely to become abusers. Children of alcoholics are more, much more likely to extend the cycle of alcoholism in their own lives, and they have a fourfold increased risk of becoming alcoholics as adults compared with the general population. These systems repeat themselves over and over and over again. And in family systems and counseling, they teach us to draw it out so that you can recognize it. It's called a genogram. And you'll see abuse up here and then it'll trickle down and it'll be again. Or you'll see alcoholism or addiction and it'll, it'll find itself back down in the family system. And so in order to recognize it, they map it out. 
So how do you break a family system like this that's found in Genesis and maybe even in our world today? How do you break an unhealthy system? By recognizing it first, because no matter how far it goes back, no matter how many generations, the hard truth is it starts with us in changing the system. We have to recognize it, but we can't just know about it. We can't just recognize it. We have to do something. We have to physically break it. The second step is repentance. The Hebrew word is teshuva, to turn back to God. We've turned away in whatever that is, jealousy, competitiveness, addiction, brokenness. We've turned away, and so we have to turn back to God. Repentance, teshuva. And the Christian life involves proper thinking, as Paul talks about here in the church, in the letter to the church in Philippi. But it also includes doing. He says, practice these things. We know that when we think on something, that our doing follows, right, church? And so he says, focus in on these things and practice, therefore, these things. Focus your thoughts on all that is true and all that is holy and all that is just and all that is pure and all that is worthy of praise. Turn your mind from the brokenness, he did that to me and it hurt, to what's God's ways, what's holy in this, what's just in this, what's lovely in this, how can I reconcile this, and then practice these things. Paul knows fully that where our mind is set, our actions will follow. Our actions will follow. And any kind of change is difficult, isn't it, church? Let alone a change in a system that may have been going on for generations and generations. But it can be done by putting God in the midst, by asking God to be first in it. Because with God, all things are possible, even the breaking of a generation after generation unhealthy system. The more complicated your family is, the more you must put into practice the ways of Christ. To find forgiveness when you don't want to. To hold in love instead of being competitive. To lift the other up instead of being in our own selfish ways. We have to put into practice those ways of Christ. Because I said dysfunction does beget dysfunction. But the other side of that is that love begets love, church. Truth begets truth. Kindness begets kindness. Forgiveness begets forgiveness. We have to put them in practice. It takes the first step. Now, Jacob begins to break the cycle. Even though it'll crop back up later on in their generations, Jacob begins to break the cycle. He turns back toward God from his his scheming ways. 
Jacob said, Lord, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. He's recognizing that God has been there all along, and he's been the one that's turned away. He said, Lord of God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I'll make sure things go well for you. I don't deserve how loyal and truthful you've been to your servant. He turns back, that teshuva, back to God. He knows that he has sinned against God. He knows he sinned against his brother Esau. And yet... He goes. He does it. The scriptures talk about he wrestles with an angel of the Lord all night. I always read that as he's probably wrestling with his conscience. His memories of all the ways he's tricked in the past. All the ways that he's done wrong in the sight of God. And he comes out the next morning a changed person. So much so that he limps. God has touched his hip. And his name is no longer Jacob. No longer trickster, schemer, supplanter. His name is now Israel. And as he moves toward his brother, he moves toward him in asking forgiveness. You see, church, it's never too late to ask for forgiveness. It's never too late to receive that. It's no late, never too late to say, I'm sorry. Because God is at work all along in those relationships, moving us closer, moving us toward the restoration. It's never too late to practice God's ways. You see... No matter how complicated our family is, God's love can change everything and make it new. You know, we make it complicated. It's really very simple. When you put God in the midst and you put God first, everything else will fall in place. It will be restored. God's love changes everything. Let's pray. Gracious God, forgive us for when we turn away from you, when we desire things of the world or our own way. Help us to put into practice your ways, to think on the things of forgiveness and love and holiness and just, things that are lovely and worthy to be praised. We know with you all things are possible. If there's someone in our family that needs our forgiveness, may we grant it. And if there's someone in our family that we need to ask forgiveness from, may you help us walk that person's way. In Jesus' name, amen.